you washed up. Sorry? <laughs> Welcome to the island of discarded women, my friend. I used to be somebody. Are you that woman on the radio? Your island job is peladora de papas. Uh, sorry, what? Potato peeler. 87% match for uh, your skills. Okay, that's not... Anyway, what is the second best match then? Host of the island podcast. Are you kidding me? No, no, see, that's me. That That's perfect for... Surprised? Me? Yeah, you. <laughs> a little. Yeah. Little. No, actually a lot. Yeah, 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 I know I was too. I mean, a little bit surprised, but... Oh my God, Fetterman. Oh, Fetterman. God bless Fetterman. Yes, God bless him. God bless him. Oh my gosh, God bless him, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, they know him, you know. Who? Pennsylvanians. <laughs> Of course they do. Of course they do. They know him very well, right? Mm-hmm. <sighs> Minnesota blue. Bright blue, baby. That's right. That's right. <laughs> so, codify? Row? ERA? Sure. Yes. Right. Huh? But could it get uncodified later? Is that a thing? Do or. Decodified or ex-codified? Yeah, I don't know anything about the codification thing. Yeah, me neither. Yeah, I don't really know. Yeah. Oh my God, those ads. The political ads. Oh my God, and that <laughs> voice. Wait, what voice, Sue? You know that snarky voice. I mean, both sides of them. Uh-huh. Sue Scott says she's pro woman, but did you know uh-huh. she actually owns a home with a man? Oh God. <laughs> Sue Scott okay. is bad for women. <laughs> Okay. The content of this advertisement was paid for by SendSueScottBackToTheRadio.com. Oh, you know, so you could totally yeah. do those ads. You oh, have yeah, the never, voice never for in it. a million years. Oh, I, I could have. I, okay, I didn't. Okay. I never did, but I could have. I turned down those jobs, actually. Oh. But hey, 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 hey. Voiceover actors have to eat. I mean, you know, so they do them. They do them. You know, they do yeah, them. Yeah, they do them. Yep, yep, yeah. yep. <sighs> Big wave. Yeah. Yep, we've stopped a big frickin' wave, yeah. Uh, no, I mean, right now, there's a big wave what? coming towards us. Sue, oh, why, why do we shit. do this? We literally always do this. Oh my God, a big this. wave. Oh my, oh my God, God. God. I just thought that it was gonna get wet. Oh my God, why did I get my purse? Cellist Olivia Dirks and violinist Carla Colohan. So I want to hear about your who you are, how you met, your name, all of that. So go. Who's going to start? Go ahead, Olivia. Yeah, so we met at Luther College in Decorah, Iowa, and we played in symphony and chamber orchestras together starting our freshman year, but we weren't friends then. Uh-oh. Um, Uh-oh. <laughs> we became friends our junior year. Uh, we... Was she that girl over there? Oh, that girl. She's not my friend. <laughs> well, Carla was concertmaster. Oh. She was kind of hot stuff. Oh. Was I? Hello. I was intimidated. <laughs> <laughs> okay, sorry, you were going ahead. Okay, so you saw her across the room. No, I saw said her that. across said... the room. Yeah, yeah okay. I did. I got to know her. <laughs> Um, we co-founded a hip-hop strings group called Strangs. Yeah. With a Z at yeah. the end. Strangs. Yeah. It's like, okay, so just picture this, if you will. A hip-hop string group. Got it? Your Im- image in your mind? Okay. <laughs> Go on. Yes, yeah, so Strangs. We actually had t-shirts with glitter on them. It was pretty cool. Oh, my gosh. That is so strange. <laughs> But the thing we did was um, arrange pop tunes by ear. And so it was there that Carla and I discovered we both had this love for alternative styles of music, but also um, alternative styles of playing. And um, we attended an Eileen Ivers concert together our junior year. She's an Irish fiddler. And we're just blown away. Her presence on stage was so enthusiastic and so joyful. And we just thought... um, 
could that ever be our experience? Yeah, 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 yeah. And um, yeah, so I, I went back to my dorm room that night and wrote a little fiddle tune with just an A and B, very simple, um, but took it to the practice room the next day with Carla and um, everything just kind of clicked. Wow. Yeah. 10 yeah. years later, here we are. Yeah, and 10 years later, here you are. Okay, so the name. <laughs> we lived in the same house our, our senior year and um, realized, you know, this is, this is going to be a thing, you know, we're going to do this for a while, so we should probably have a band name. And so we had a wall in our house that was full of post-it notes with just all kinds of different ideas. Strings. Uh, <laughs> for two. sure up there. Yeah. Um, anyway, you know, nothing really stuck. We, we didn't really love any of it. And then Carla came up to my room one night and was like, what about the OK factor? And I'm like, OK. More. Okay. Yeah. Yes. Tell me more. Um, and she said, "Well, you know, it's not like the X factor. It's when you get Olivia and Carla with a K." Uh, oh, right. Right? Yeah, right, right. In the same space musically, you know, it's that factor. It's whatever that is. Yeah. Um, yeah. 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 So it stuck around, and it's too late to change it now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All the post-its came down. Yeah. But you, I was asking about whether there's that thing of the okay thing. And you were saying originally it was like, well, it was Olivia and Carla with a K. It's okay. And then it, you've, you've embraced that, though. Yeah, yeah, there's lots of, like, they're more than okay. And we yeah. kind of love that now. Yeah. So we really lean <laughs> well, into that. You've got, they've got merch out there. They're going to sell um, uh, CDs and pins. Yeah, the one says, be kind, okay. And then the other one says, it's okay. See? Yeah. Merch. Yeah. <laughs> they got merch. I'm sorry. Swag. swag. <laughs> they got swag. All right, the song you're going to do. Yeah, it's a, it's a tune called Up in the Air. Yeah. Um, the main portion of the melody was written while I was flying on an airplane. I was not flying the plane. I was, okay. I was writing. So multi-talented, with, these no. people. <laughs> Unbelievable. Music <laughs> thing, flying planes. Go ahead, sorry. I had a window seat, and I was just looking out over the wing, and it's got that, um, the blinky light, which I have since uh, learned is called a beacon indicator. Yeah. Did you know it's called a beacon indicator? Anybody? Anybody? We know that now, right? Trivia. <laughs> After she told me that this afternoon, I kept calling it the beacon of light. And she's like, no, it's not that. I go, could we call it the beacon of light? I like that better. I don't know that the FAA would approve. Okay. Oh, darn. Anyway. Yeah, I know. And you were saying it's blinking at, it's blinking at a, at a, at a, a certain meter. BPM. Yeah, yeah. If I had to guess, I'd say like 66, 68, something like that. Yeah. Nice, and, nice and slow. And a, and a tune just kind of came, you know, formed. I was flying at night, so it was dark outside. He got the lights down below. She gets her violin out. The stewardess get on the thing. Ma'am, put the violin away, please. We're still in the air. Anyway, go ahead. I, I took out my phone okay. and opened up voice memos. And still somewhere in the archives of my life, there is a, a voice memo recording with the <sighs> of the airplane. And in Which this I think little strings, tune. I think that would be a hit for strings, <laughs> oh, it per, would. personally. Yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd send it to Olivia. We started working on it, and it, it became a tune that was like, yes, we are 30,000 feet up in the air during this song, looking down at the world, taking a moment away from everything. But the more we play it, it's, it's more about, um, yes, being on the planet. You can't get away from yeah. life. You can't get away from the world. And so finding a moment just to be for yourself wherever you find yourself while you're listening to this tune. Yeah. Wow, I love that. Okay. Here's the okay factor and up in the air. Thank you. 
Thank you, Olivia and Carla. Thank you so much. Oh my God, that was stunning. Just stunning, just stunning. Okay, so um, anticipating this show with these guests and the okay factor and the various connotations of the term okay, I was reminded that in the front hallway of our house, there's a framed and signed original drawing of a cartoon by a friend of ours, Jerry Van Amerongen. Some of you may know, he writes The Ballard Street. And in the panel, this cartoon panel, there is an older woman, kind of a vintage grandma type of woman. And she's sitting and she's staring out the window with sort of a winsome look on her face. And she has um, her head resting on one hand. And in the other hand, the forefinger and the thumb are pinched in a just so big kind of a gesture. And she's thinking to herself, I am this close to not being okay. Leading up to the midterms, I was definitely this close to not being okay. <laughs> I was actually resigned to the fact that things were gonna go horribly badly and it was all going to be my fault. I hadn't helped enough. I hadn't sent enough donations. I hadn't had time to do any phone banking. We were gonna lose big because people like me were too selfish and hadn't worked hard enough. I mean, okay, I voted. Okay, I did that, okay. And then the night of the election, absolute dread turned into, well, so far not so horrible, turned into, uh, well, maybe there's a little room for hope, maybe just a little room for hope, turned into sort of a cautious possibility of some kind of joy, maybe, sort of. After I moved to the Midwest from Arizona, my mom would call me and she'd say, well, so how are things going? And I'd say, oh, pretty good. And she'd say, pretty good? Why just pretty good? Why not very good? And I thought, well, to me, pretty good was pretty good. I was better than not good, right? But uh, no, pretty good was not good enough for her. No, she wanted to hear me say, I'm great, things are great, things are really good. Now, now, of course, on one hand, I'm sure she wanted to make sure that I was really okay and that I wasn't masking or sugarcoating some sort of bad thing or depression or loneliness or whatever. On the other hand, I think she was trying to remind me that there was nothing wrong with celebrating the small victories, the little subtle successes. That something great didn't mean that it had to be some big, huge, monumental thing, right? It could be something simple. Like when we were growing up, and every morning, my mom would open up the curtains and she'd say, oh, look, look at this beautiful, sunny day out there. And we'd say, mom, it's Tucson. It's sunny every day. <laughs> and she'd say, well, who cares? We can still appreciate it, can't we? My mother's rheumatoid arthritis meant that some days it was very, very hard for her to even get out of bed. And even on those days, she still celebrated that glorious Tucson sun streaming in through the windows. We held the Senate, yes. <laughs> Terrific. We may not hold the House, and yet I am gonna celebrate this midterm as a huge success because of the young women and men who voted in droves. They knew this election could drastically affect their lives and they showed up. And there is still a bunch of crap out there, of course. But I would have to say, right now, I am extremely close to being okay. Welcome our singer-songwriter, the wonderful, the adorable, the ever-zippy-ish, Zippy Lasky. I don't even know what that means. It just came I to I don't me. know, but I like it. I'm an improver. Did you know that? I had no idea. Yeah, I know. It's not obvious. Okay. Zippy, take it away. If I were to go back 10 years from now and tell my old self that I was in my first semester of nursing school... I would say, what, how did that happen? Nursing was not in my plan because school wasn't for me. I barely made it through high school. 
I had zero interest in going. The classes were boring. The workload was tedious. The fluorescent lighting, nope, not my thing. I wanted to do music. Singing was my thing. I was the singer and everyone knew that. My teachers had already deemed me completely incompetent academically. So singing was my way out. That was my destiny. Fast forward a few years. In my early 20s, I unexpectedly became pregnant and it changed my life. And it changed me. My dreams began shifting and changing and rearranging and my priorities and goals looked a lot different. I decided to go back to school, not expecting much out of it because all my life I had been told that I was not cut out for school. I remember getting my first A in biology. I laughed. It was funny how easy school was if you did your homework. <laughs> so after a few semesters of generals, it was clear to me, okay, school is something that I can do. I loved my teachers, my classmates, the curriculum, the satisfaction of completing something. It was a complete 180 from where I had been. My advisor noticed that I was excelling in my health science classes. Nursing, I said. Hmm, I'd have to think about that one. She says, well, I'd keep some other options open too. It's a very difficult program to get into. Okay, challenge accepted. You know, I really don't like being told that I can't do something. So what started out as a fun challenge to see what I was capable of turned into something that I genuinely enjoyed. To be honest, the first time that I applied to nursing school, I didn't get in. And I cried on my couch for six hours. I tried really hard and it didn't work out. Well, work out yet. So I applied the following semester. I had already been mentally preparing myself for the big letdown, but I remember waking up April 1st and I opened that first acceptance email and I screamed. My husband jolted up out of bed. What's going on? <laughs> I didn't get in. <laughs> Just kidding. I got in. I got in. I got in. By the way, I played that joke on all my family members that day. It was great. That day, I opened six acceptance emails from the schools that I had applied to. And I'm telling you, that high was like no other that I felt. I freaking did it. And I was so happy and so proud and scared as hell that I actually had to go to nursing school now. <laughs> I will always be a singer, a performer. That is who I am. But there are so many other facets of who I am. And I'm just now allowing those to take stage. I'm exploring new dreams and new avenues, and it's exciting and fun, and who knows, maybe somehow, someday, these dreams will merge into one big, entirely new dream, so I'm just gonna go with it. It feels right, it feels good, and it makes me happy. Hit out a funny way of working out Things that I never considered myself Out on the front lines Taking over the spotlight I was just floating in a la-la dream When I heard this little voice inside of me Go on and do it Might just be a perfect fit in That's not my thing But the thing is that I don't need to turn out that I'm cut for this Ain't that the beauty of the dreams change and rearrange A single thread that woke me from a nap Is the best dream I had yet Call it a push and pull of destiny Some will need their reason, some will let it be but as for me, call it a floating dream I wasn't looking for it, it found me Can't say when it happened, but when it did, it clear 
my panic attacks like a record that was damaged. As my life moved, the record that was playing smoothly would come to a glitch. And it didn't matter how much I tried to wipe the record, how strong the material was, the scratch was still there, and I hated it. Why was I like this? Why couldn't I control my own body? Why couldn't I get a grip? I was so fixated on what it made me be seen as, so fixated on the imperfection, it made me feel ashamed. The first time I ever had a panic attack, I was 17. It was right after a physical encounter with my ex, and the look in his eyes, I can't put it into words, but I could feel that he wanted to physically hurt me. And though that wouldn't have been the first time, it was a different kind of possession I felt from him that made me feel like prey under a predator. He was no longer human to me at that moment. Now, I didn't realize what scratch was made on my record of life until I went to my choir rehearsal right after. Yes, of all the places I decided to go to after my traumatic experience, it was choir, extracurricular choir at that. I didn't need to be there. But I mean, I did honor letter and choir that year, so I guess it was worth it. <laughs> Anyway, a friend of mine intended to greet me by giving me a hug with both her arms out to grab me, and when I saw her approach, I flinched. And even though I understood her intentions and I've never held any fear towards her, I immediately felt a wave of tears stream down my face and fear strangle my heart as I retreated into a corner in the back of my mind. And you know, to this day, that memory is covered in a black vignette. You know, like in the old-timey and moody photos where there's a black haze around the image and the subject of the photo is highlighted, yet there's a cloudiness. You know, the darkness from the vignette shading into the image creates almost a scary and somber feel to the picture. That's what this memory feels like. And, and I say feel because I can't really remember it. I can hardly physically remember how I got through my choir rehearsal that day. After that, the scratches in my record just seemed to increase. Or, to say it more accurately, I became aware of them. I've learned over time that they were there, growing, 
stretching, slowly embedding themselves into my muscles, all of it being nurtured by my ex's rancid personality. They were simple little things that I didn't take notice of before, like the panic type of fear I had when people raised their voices at me, or when I couldn't fix something and felt extreme anxiety because I wasn't doing what I was supposed to be doing, or when I finally learned what emotional abuse was and burst into tears because I wasn't crazy. I knew he was doing something to me. I found myself constantly falling into this abyss. Now, even after my mind seemed to be solid in recognizing that what happened was not my fault, my body refused to forget. It was as if all the years it spent tense and walking on eggshells could no longer hold tension. And it was extremely frustrating because all the years I had no control, I finally gained myself back, but not the way I used to be. My poor husband, different, healthier man, had one heck of a time dealing with my panic attacks while we were dating because he would want to hold me, but that only made it worse because it was tied to why I even had panic attacks to begin with, the holding. And so all he could do was sit in front of me, waiting as I tried to catch my breath and calm down. And God, it warmed my heart. Him sitting there with no signs of judgment or ever tiring, ready for me to curl in his arms from the exhaustion of my body shaking and cries of help involuntarily screeching through my lungs, made me feel so warm. I truly don't know how I got so lucky to have a patient and kind soul as my partner in life, but I am thankful I don't have complete trash taste in men, you know. <laughs> I'm doing a lot better now. I'm okay. I'm still working through these panic attacks and I still don't like having them, but one of the greatest things did happen recently with it. After being forced awake because of my panic attack, which I, I didn't know you could have in your dream and then wake up continuing having, it was a fun way to find out. But for the first time, I said thank you to my body. I loved my body for telling me where my limits are and where my starting point was to work on. I loved it for protecting me and allowing me to feel the things that my mind can't process at the moment. I was grateful I could understand myself a little more. And now I'm not trying to romanticize this. This is simply the joy I've decided to see. Instead of just listening to the broken record scratch and scratch, I nudged it forward. That's the way I've decided to take back my own happiness. After all, the record of my life is still a good song. Thank you, Jay. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jay. And thank you, Zippy, for your story and your beautiful song. Yes, thank you to both of you. It's time for the OK Factor to come back up for, for song number two. Song number two. Here they come with their violin and their cello. OK. So this song is called Love Song for Lucy. Mm -hmm. And so where did that come from? Well, Lucy is my eldest golden retriever. Okay. Uh, uh, uh. Oh, oh. <laughs> yeah, she, uh, she just turned five. She now has a little brother, Franklin, uh -oh. who is about to be one year. And um, Do they get along? They do. Yeah. But this isn't about Franklin. This is about <laughs> Lucy. About Lucy. <laughs> Lucy gets her time. She yeah. does. She's a sweetheart. And um, we wrote it when she was just a puppy. And, you know, all puppies have this boundless joy yeah. that they literally cannot contain. Um, and this song kind of came out of that just desire for bumbling joy. Okay. Here's a song about bumbling joy. <laughs> Love song for Lucy, the okay factor.
Thank you again. Thank you so much. Just terrific. Okay, now please help me welcome my guest for the conversation, Roxanne Battle. Roxanne, come on up. Come on up. Hi. Okay, good night, everybody. We're just going to say, look at each other. Okay, Factor was a okay, tremendous. I know, really. As, and the, was, as was your nursing story, just fab. Right. I loved it. Right, all of it, everybody, all y'all. And you. yes, 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 your marriage story, yes. And we're gonna go table by table and talk about how everybody's fabulous. We're gonna feel love for everyone. Okay. This is this is like the second time you and I have been on the island together. I know. We sailed. We were on the Virgin. I know. The, the, you, the I know. Okay. So, so Roxanne. Okay. So she writes this book, Pockets of Joy, and then uh, I helped produce the audio book for her. So the audio book that's still out there, available on Amazon. That's the original. The original version, version not of the, the expanded book. version. Yeah. So we we worked on the audio book together. And then um, when I was doing a pilot for this, what became this podcast, you can hear eight minutes of Roxanne from a, the pilot episode we, we did four years ago. Four years I ago. I know, we were a lot younger then. Yes, we were. Doesn't we're still cute, though, so it's okay. okay. We're so cute. We don't look any different anyway. I'm still wearing the same shoes. Yeah. I okay. think, yeah, those are, I love the shoes. I know, thank okay. you. Right. Anywho, okay, we should probably get to work here. All right. I just want to do just a little bit of your bio. Okay. Okay. The 20 years that you were a television journalist, right? Yes. You were three-time Emmy nominated, you know, news anchor and reporter, right? Yes. Right? We're, we're, maybe we should whistle now. Maybe we should be whistling. Um, you are now the vice president of advocacy and community with Able to Inc. and San Velo Health. That's right. Both part of United Health Group. Correct. And with San Velo Health, you are also the DEI council chair. Yes. Your first book, as we said, your first book was published in 2017, at least the expanded version. Pockets of Joy, Deciding to be Happy, Choosing to be Free. It's an Amazon best-selling self-help memoir. 
just released in paperback. Right. You are a sought-after speaker. You're a proud mom. Yes. And according to that LinkedIn page, you own a pair of roller skates and you make a mean mac and cheese. And I'm going to be whipping out several versions for Thanksgiving. That is correct. Have you ever made the mac and cheese in the roller skates? <laughs> that would be a challenge. That would be fun, wouldn't it? You kind of roll that around, would, roll mac around. And cheese and hey, it skates. needs more cheese. That would Whoa, be. Whoa, wait a second. There's cheese everywhere. I don't think about that. Talk about show. bumbling would, joy. I really. Is that a bumbling joy there? Okay, so currently you have this series of, of short videos. Yes, Checking In with Roxanne Battle, which is a series on the Sanvelo app. We have yeah. four million subscribers on the app. Four million subscribers. And I use all of my television skills, storytelling skills, and I look in the eye of the camera, and I give you tips on how to deal with anxiety and stress. Yeah. How to um, have a mental health toolkit, the things that need to go into your toolkit, like a confidant, somebody you can talk to, like my, my best friend is here tonight, uh, something calming, something warm. And then I did one video called How to Break Up with Your Phone, because we are all guilty yes. of doom scrolling. Yes. Right. 1.8 million people saw that video. Wow. And did they see it on their phone? <laughs> I mean, wouldn't you, wouldn't you wonder? How else are they going to look at it? Anyway, sometimes our phones are useful, but yes. Yes. So here, okay, here's the thing about these videos. They are so engaging. They're so beautifully shot. You listen to every word. You take it all in. It resonates no matter who you are, no matter where you are in your life. You, there's something that clicks. And someone might say, well, duh, she's good on camera. You know, she was on TV all these years. But that's not it. It's you. Oh. It's you. I'm telling you, Roxanne, there is just this compassion and this authenticity and this honesty. And you just want to go, please tell me more. Please help me, you know, name it and fix it and find my kit and all that kind of stuff. And it's such a perfect fit. I'm not just saying that because people are here. Thank you. So I mean, I am saying that because people are here, yeah. but oh. I'm not just saying that because people yeah. are here. I, you know, people often wonder, how did you go from being a television journalist to being a mental health advocate who's got a series of videos, you know, on an app, and it's just, it's still the storytelling. It's still, you yeah. know, at, at San Bello, they called me the Empress of Empathy because of all the things that you just said. Yeah. I mean, I really, I'm very fortunate, and I feel very grateful to be in this stage in my life and to still be able to do work that I'm passionate about and that I believe in. It's not just a job. I am in possession of information because I interface with clinicians and providers and therapists and mental health coaches and they teach me all kinds of wonderful things yeah. in the positive psychology space, in the cognitive behavioral therapy space, in the mindfulness space. They teach me these things and I can take them and tell stories about them that are relatable and give people information that can help them live better lives. And I'm very passionate about that. Well, and you were talking to me earlier when you were saying, you know, what you did as a journalist and what you're doing now, sharing stories, uh, delivering information, it's not that different. It's the same set of skills. Right. You can see, as you so kindly mentioned about what you saw in the videos, it's the same looking in the eye of the camera and talking to one person that you really want to impart a bit of information yeah. to. It's the same set of skills, yeah. just trafficking and functioning passionately in the mental health space. There's this one video where you're talking about overcoming fear. Yes, that's on my LinkedIn page. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And, and some of the things, just to pull from that, you know, that Failure is part of the process. Failure is part of the process. Get comfortable at being uncomfortable. Get comfortable being uncomfortable. That is the only way to a breakthrough. Yeah. And then the other one, that, uh, that we need to let go of every reason why it won't work. We can talk ourselves out of Which every... I thought, oh my God, how many times do we do that? Well, it's not going to work because... It's like, what about all the reasons why it might work? Right. In therapy, they tell us that, uh, that the magical question in therapy that often leads to breakthroughs is if the barrier were removed, what would you do? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. If the barrier were removed, what would you do? And whatever just, the barrier was. Whatever the barrier yeah, yeah, is. Fear. Yeah, yeah. Fear of public opinion, fear of I might fail, fear of the unknown, fear of being uncomfortable. If the barrier were removed, what would you do? And then take one step in that direction. Yeah, wow. So all of this that you're doing right now, yeah. none of this would have happened had you not written the book. 
pockets of joy literally landed me on the front step of United Health Group. Yeah. Yeah. If I, I had I wrote the book and you know I sold it some five, six years ago to Whitaker House Publishing, which is the largest faith-based publisher in the United States. And they then said, we love what you did here, but we want more. So they gave me six weeks to write eight more chapters. I didn't know it was six weeks. They Seriously, gave me six, six weeks? weeks to write wow. eight more chapters, wow. which I did. And yeah. all of those chapters talked about how I overcame um, loneliness and depression and dealt with my own anxiety and how I cope with you know, I thought, as I said to you earlier, I thought Pockets of Joy was a book about how I navigated an amicable divorce with my son's father. That's what I thought the book was about. But really the book is about how I navigated two life quakes, uh, divorce and leaving my career as a television journalist, yeah. and how I found my way back to mental well-being. And mm -hmm. that's what the last eight chapters are about how I utilize things like self-care and forgiveness and positive connections and gratitude, all the things we talk about now in the mental health space, except I didn't know that, but these were the things that were helping me, really good friends that I could talk to and I could trust, moments of solitude where I could listen to myself away from everybody else and ask myself what it is that I really want and how am I gonna move forward with my life? And then gratitude, yeah, I didn't have the things I used to have, but I still have a few things now. Yeah. And the more you express gratitude, the more things you find to be grateful for and the more joyful you become. And these are all the themes that I wrote about in Pockets of Joy. As I said, I sold the book six years ago. It still peaks and spikes yeah. in and out of the top 100 bestseller. So there's something there that tells me is resonating with people about finding those pockets of joy. It was interesting, I, I said something about, you know, sometimes that's hard to find joy, and she said, I'm talking about pockets, not like suitcases full of joy. <laughs> you know, sometimes it's hard to say, we're just talking about pockets. I don't have any pockets in this thing, but I, how come there's no pockets in women's clothing? I don't know why there's no pockets. Anyway, uh, I could use a pocket right now. I want to give them a little, uh, you know, I want them to buy the book, they're going to go buy the book, but some of the, um, the challenges that you wrote about and the pockets that you were trying, the joy yeah. you were trying to find. Yeah, yeah. Right after your son Jared was born, your um, divorce. 11 months, my son was 11 months old when I filed for divorce. Yeah. And then also, um, you were a very hardworking television journalist. You were a reporter and then you were a weekend anchor and you were a daytime talk show host. I mean, you were one of our local celebrities. For better part of 15 years. Yeah. You were telling me earlier how you would, in the grocery store, people would look in your cart. Oh, what did Well, she's having filet mignon for dinner? Oh. oh my God, how much do they pay those people? Or, oh, that's the kind of peanut butter, but I better go get that. I'm gonna put back what I got and I'm gonna get what she got. So. That's what was happening. That's what you were doing. You were on this sort of trajectory, right? You were waiting to get the, you know, the face on the bus, right? The face, having my face on the side of a bus. Yeah, yeah, right. And then the priority started to shift with you being a single mom. Yes, yes, yes. I, you know, you know, you talk about work-life balance, and you know, each decision is unique to each individual. What's right for me may not be right for you. But at that point in time, when I became a mom and where I was in my television news career, I'd been there, done that. I'd, I'd been down to City Hall, I'd been on all the junkets, I'd covered all the fun, event, you know, and I'd seen the, it's kind of like a journalist is the, like a priest, you see the people on their best and their yeah, worst day, right? right? And uh, I well, had their Mariah Carey's and then their princes and their yeah, the thing, the thing. Been to Paisley Park, yeah. yes, right, all of right. that. Went to London, yeah. um, all of that, and which I write about in the book. But when I became a mama, and uh, that just was, uh, that was life-changing for me. Yeah. I really wanted to be a mom. Yeah. And um, at the time that I became a mom, and uh, the television news underwent a dramatic shift with this thing called the internet. I don't know if you've heard of it. Yeah. But you know, it really, really impacted broadcast phone? news. Yeah. And yeah. it just wasn't, it was the end of the era. Yeah. And it wasn't what it used to be. It wasn't all the things that I loved. We could get on an airplane, Sue, and fly away and do a fun story and come back and tell everybody what you saw. You know, we, the budgets were slashed and things were tighter and meaner and harder. And I, I saw that as my opportunity to, to make a, a life pivot. And so I quit. Yeah. I, I walked away. There's a passage in your book 
Were you, you're struggling with this decision to quit? It was a very difficult decision that I didn't enter into lightly. So Roxanne's going to read this little piece of just this sort of crux of this moment. Yeah. yeah. It's in the title, it's in the chapter called Tidal Wave, and it is literally a watershed moment for me because I was like, go or stay, go or stay, what am I going to do? I talked to everybody, I had drawn the line down the you know, center of a piece of paper, pro, con, stay, go. And then one Sunday, I, I found myself on the front row at church. Then the pastor walked around from the pulpit and stood directly in front of the congregation. People were praying, and now some had started weeping. It was a real spiritual outpouring taking place. It was in that atmosphere that Pastor McIntosh said the words that have stayed with me from that day to this. You are free to be who God made you to be, and God will be with you. Mm -hmm. oh, oh my goodness. When he said that, I felt like he was talking directly to me. You are free to be who God made you to be, and God will be with you. Something inside of me broke. All the anxiety, the pressure, and confusion, and frustration over the decision before me came flooding to the surface, spilling out in front of everyone right there in the front row. I began to weep then cried, then sobbed. I sobbed and sobbed and sobbed right there on the front row. People were huddling around me, patting my back, holding my hand, and I just cried and cried and cried. The ushers kept handing me one tissue after another. I must have gone through a whole box. I just cried. And when I was done crying, I knew I was free. Yeah, yeah. Yes, yes, thank you, thank you, thank you. And then you say, in the next passage, you said that you went home and wrote Yeah, I, that, I went home that Sunday, wrote my letter of resignation, and turned it in on Monday morning. Yeah, right. And never looked back. And then after that, there was the, what do I do now? Who am I? I was Roxanne Battle, I was the TV journalist. I don't have that title anymore. So where does your ego go? Where does your self-esteem go? Tell us you, about you that. You go to the island of discarded women. Yeah, that's right. where you go. That's where you go. <laughs> See? You know? Yeah. That's where you go. Yeah. I went to Starbucks and drank coffee. We should have Starbucks as a sponsor. Yeah, we should get, we should, we should, yeah. It's a great idea. Yeah. Um, you talked about how what you missed most was the writing. Yes. The thing that really saved me was listening to my own heartbeat and just quieting out all the other voices that said, you should be on TV, you're nobody, if you're not on TV, people don't know you, you don't get invited to the charity events anymore, you don't get to go to the galas anymore. And then you just quiet all that out and you listen to your own heartbeat and you ask yourself, what do you really want? Where are you and what are you doing when you find those pockets of joy? What brings you peace? And for yes, it for me being a mom, but if I really had to think about it, it was the writing. That's why I became a journalist in the first place, because I loved to write. And so I started blogging from InPost, mm -hmm. and then I was writing the church announcements. And then from that, I wrote six Christmas pageants. Uh, plays, one every year, I directed them, and I was, so I'm thinking, if I'm, I'm writing the announcements, I'm writing the plays, I'm writing the blogs, let's write the book. And I'd always had that aspiration, and so I wrote Pockets of Joy uh, in a matter of months, and we self-published it, and um, I got caught the eye of a few influencers, um, one of whom was Maria Shriver, mm -hmm. um, and yeah. she wrote about Pockets of Joy on her website, and that's how it became a bestseller. Yeah, right, right, right. Yes, 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 yes. Yeah. Here's what's interesting to me is it wasn't like, oh, I'm going to write a self-help book that's going to help others, right? I think it was more of, I'm just going to share with you what works for me, right? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And, and um, I had a really great team at Whitaker House, and they, they said, who are you writing this book for? And I said, I'm writing it for a mom who's got a couple kids, who's curious about faith, and she's in this intersection of life. And people say, but you only had one kid. Why are you writing a book for a mom who has a couple kids? And I said, because I don't know everything. My experience is not everyone else's experience. Yeah. And so I can't tell people what to do. 
I can only say, here's what worked for me, and it's something for you to consider. And that's why I think the book still spikes in and out of the best one, 100 bestseller list, is because I just told the truth. I told the truth about my pain and my anxiety and my loneliness and, and this dying to ego, which I write yeah, about. Right, right, right. And right. That I think there's something in that about really owning who you are and listening to your own heartbeat and being true to what you want, that virtue of what do I want? What makes my heart sing? Where yeah. am I and what am I doing when I'm the happiest? And then leaning into that. Yeah. There's something about that theme that's in the book that I think continues to resonate with people. I, and I do think there's, because of the whole pockets of joy thing, is that as opposed to the blame, the pointing the fingers, all that kind of stuff, where is the joy, right? It's a, every day. Yeah. It's around you every day. Right. That's, why, that's why it's not a suitcase. I know. Right? It's or a, a U-Haul truck. Right. It's I said I would actually be. I would love it if there was a U-Haul truck of joy. It's a pocket. that's a sequel. That's the sequel, right? U-Haul of U-Haul. U-Haul truck. Okay. Okay. Um, just for you, Sue. Just for me. It's just exclusive. Uh, okay. I want to ask you about San Velo Health. San Velo and um, the VP of Advocacy and Community. And you were hired one week before the pandemic shut down. That's right. And a couple months later, George Floyd is murdered. That's right. And you had been on the job at that point for six weeks. Six weeks. And you were talking about how, what emotional time. You have a black son. Yes, I have a black adult male son. Right. Who's driving around the streets of Minneapolis. And while you're at San Velo, which was a startup. Yes. And they didn't really have a, a structure in place, a big fancy DEI structure in place. No. But you guys created something with your leadership position. You created something called the Bridge. Bridge, building relationships, inclusion, diversity, and greater equity. Okay. And Bridge was birthed out of a call we had within days of the murder of George Floyd because I was on the call with my senior leadership team. We gathered together, we said, we gotta address this. The team's a little nervous, we're in the mental health space. How do we take care of our team so we can take care you know, of our, our clients, our friend, our audience? And um, in that call, I was relaying the story of how I lived close enough to the neighborhood um, that I saw the fires from the overnight fires. Yeah. And as I told my team that I burst into tears, weeping, about my city is burning. Yeah. And you know, it's not something I'm looking at in the news and it's in a land far away that doesn't impact me. I saw the smoke from the fires from my, my front window and I burst into tears and uh, they said, uh, well, if you're feeling that way, you know, well, the team is feeling that way. So an hour later, I moderated a call with the entire company and I just talked about, we're here to give you space, to hold space for you. This has happened. You don't have to say anything, or you can say whatever is on your mind. And there was lots of tears. There's lots of moments of silence, and lots of companies around, you know, did that. We San Velo certainly wasn't unique, but this was my experience. And out of that one-hour call, we birthed Bridged. We birthed uh, the BIPOC um, ERG Employee Research Group. And we did a lot of programming to really hold space for our team and let them feel seen heard mm -hmm. and valued in this very critical moment. Yeah. In a recent LinkedIn post, you talk about the term crucible. Oh, yes. And that's where we all are. And you break down the different definitions. Right. Well, a crucible is uh, a point in time where different pressures come to bear. And out of that, something is new is forged. A crucible is also a vessel. It's a, yeah. a bowl where metal is melted together and then it makes something new. But the point of the crucible is it's a point in time that faces a challenge and pressure. And out of that pressure, out of that challenge, something new is born. Yeah. And that's exactly where we are post-pandemic, post-George Floyd. Yeah. We have an opportunity to create something new. Mm -hmm. And when I saw the term, I came across it reading an article, Crucible, it just so resonated with me. It synthesized yeah. everything that I had been through mm -hmm. as a woman of color, as a journalist, now working in the mental health space, uh, surviving the pandemic. It just really crystallized and synthesized for me where I was at. And so in honor of uh, Black Poet History Day, which was just last month, 
um, I wrote a poem. And it's called A Crucible of Time. And Sue has been kind enough to ask me to share I just, it. I, I love this poem. I wanted her to read it, so go for it. A Crucible of Time. I am an ancestor and descendant, a crucible of time, both torchbearer and trustee. In all my blackness, all these signifiers graciously apply to me. I am whispered wisdom and joyful song, pride cemented in purpose and pain, long-lasting hope and legacy. In all my blackness, all these strides proudly belong to me. I am a multi-melanated chorus of why we won't, how we don't, and what we will ourselves to be. I am no one's monolith, outlier, or margin to be maligned. I am a fabric of fractures, lovingly stitched with strength and time. I am flesh pressed past wounds. I am all we can ever and in all ways lift our eyes to see. For I am an ancestor and descendant, a crucible of time, both torchbearer and trustee. In all my blackness, these are all the stories now entrusted to me. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Just beautiful, oh my gosh, just, just beautiful. Um, in the introduction to your book, you tell a story about uh, years ago, while you were still a journalist, getting an assignment to go to Mexico. On Gangueo, Mexico. Yes, with a seventh grade science class to observe the migration of the monarch butterfly. I'm sure some of you have seen, seen videos of how the butterflies overwinter in Mexico yeah. by the millions, and I'm hoping that you know, we can save the planet because the butterflies are you know, dwindling, but imagine seeing so many butterflies hanging on the leaves of Oyemo fir trees in such mass that they looked like clusters of ripened fruit. And when, if you stepped on a branch and it cracked, that sound would startle the butterflies and they would leap into flight. And for a moment, the sky would darken because there were just millions of butterflies yeah. taking flight. That is probably, people ask me, what was your most memorable story? And yes, you know, I've done the princes and the Mariah Curies or whatever. But the flight of the monarch butterfly going to Mexico was pivotal to me because of the mystery of how they go from Minnesota to Mexico. Yes. They mate, right. and then they the next generation flies back again. This small, ethereal creature is programmed for its own survival. And there are so many analogies in life for us. Like when butterflies are in flight, they call a flight of butterflies a kaleidoscope. And what mm. those butterflies do is they cluster together and they protect each other from the wind and the storm and the predators as they make that treacherous flight following the wind currents into Mexico. How is it that we, when we go through our difficult times, when we are faced with the crucible of time, like we're doing tonight, cluster together and protect each other from the wind and the rain and the storm and hold each other up during difficult times rather than tear each other down, form our own kaleidoscope so yeah. that we can make it to a better day. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, the, there's another analogy with the monarch butterfly in that when they are in the chrysalis, yeah, I love this. they break down to genetic soup. It becomes a, it just breaks itself down and it does its most important work in solitude. Mm. Solitude is not the same as being lonely. Yeah. Alone is not the same as being lonely. Yeah. This is where we hear our heartbeat. You know, people say praying is talking to God, sitting still and listening is listening to what he, meditation is hearing, listening and availing yourself to what he has to say. Yeah. And so the monarch does its most important work in the chrysalis. And then there's another lesson from the monarch. When it breaks out of that chrysalis, you know, it doesn't fly off to the monarch happy hour right away, right? <laughs> it hangs there 
outside of the broken chrysalis. It hangs there for a moment or two and it lets its wings dry in the sun. It pauses before embarking on the next phase of its journey. Mm. It takes a beat, it catches its breath, it takes a moment before embarking on the next phase of the journey. And for those reasons and more, the monarch speaks, it just resonates with me. Yeah, it's, no, it's just beautiful. The last thing I wanna ask you about is, um, you make a comment in the book about when you first started working in TV news and you were told that you smiled too much. Oh, yes. Yeah. You smile too much. News should be serious. You're smiling too much. Yep. Yep. And I would say, no. Your smile and where it comes from is the absolute embodiment of joy. Oh. Am I right? Am I right? Am I right? Am I right? All right? Thank you for persevering. Like the monarch butterfly. Thank you. And thank you for bringing us so much joy, Roxanne. You know, if I've learned one thing in this life is that the joy can be found in being your authentic self. The greatest gift we can give ourselves is to be yeah. ourselves. It, I, uh, it just reminds me that when, when we were doing that uh, trial interview four years ago, one of the things you said to me that I still say to myself, we were talking about what to do next and I was struggling with my career change. And you said, go, do, be. Go, do, and be. How simple is that, right? Go, do, be. All right, go, do, be. Thank you. Thank you so Thank much. You. That's our show. Thank you so much, Roxanne. Thank you so much, Roxanne Battle. Please. Thank you, Roxanne Battle. Thank you. Thank you so Thank much. You very much. All right, Thank that's you. our show for tonight. Thank you again to Roxanne Battle. Yes, yes, yes. And the OK Factor, Olivia and Carla, thank you so much. Beautiful, just beautiful. We're gonna dance, I think we should dance and whistle, okay? And maybe bark at the same time. And Day Yang, thank you Day Yang. And Zippy Lasky. And thank you to our engineers, John Robinson and Dylan Payne. Lexi Carlson, thank you for our, the light. Bonnie Allen, thank you for taking our pictures. I want to send a big island welcome to our new producing assistant, Kira Shukor. There she is, she's back there. And thank you to our amazing volunteer, Carolyn Denton, and the staff of this beautiful women's club. Please visit our website, islandofdistortedwomen.com, to hear all our episodes and for more information about our live shows. And we will be back next month with another live island of discarded women. Thank you, everybody. I'm Sue Scott. Thank you very much. Good night. Good night. Thank you.